0: This is Life Speak, a podcast about well-being, mental health, and building resilience through knowledge.
1: Here's Marianne Weisenthal. I'm speaking today with someone who has more than one fairly full-on career. Dr. Brian Goldman has spent over 40 years practicing emergency medicine. He's an ER doctor at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Canada. He's also a broadcaster who hosts the award-winning CBC radio program, White Coat, Black Art, which looks at the culture of medicine from an insider's perspective. And he hosts a CBC podcast about personal health called The Dose. Now, on top of all that, Dr. Goldman is a bestselling author of several books, The Night Shift, Real Life in the ER, The Secret Language of Doctors, and The Power of Kindness. His brand new book is called The Power of Teamwork, How We Can All Work Better Together. Dr. Goldman joins me today from Toronto, Canada. Welcome.
0: Hi, Marianne, and I hope you're going to call me Brian.
1: Okay, I will do. As an ER doctor and a broadcaster, you've had a lot of experience throughout your career working on various teams. What made you want to explore this concept further?
0: You know, it's really interesting, Marianne, because, you know, I didn't start out to write a book about teamwork. I actually wanted to write uh, a book about why medical mistakes happen because it's been a lifelong passion of mine. I did a TED talk, Doctors Make Mistakes. Can We Talk About That? It's been seen by a lot of people, and a lot of medical students have said, Thank you, because, you know, until you talked about it, nobody talked about the mistakes they made. And, you know, I got a comebacker from my editor, Brad Wilson at HarperCollins, and he said, nah, We don't want a book about medical mistakes. He got more of that than he anticipated in uh, The Power of Teamwork. But he, he wanted to see if it was possible to to take a book that was written by the esteemed colleague and author Atul Gawande called uh, the Checklist Manifesto, which has basically brought aviation style checklists to the operating room, preoperative checklists, and you know, there's some evidence to suggest that when you have a checklist, you have a safer operation. And you know, he wanted me to kind of reverse engineer that book into something else. You know, he was musing, what does healthcare have to teach aviation about safety or about better systems? And I took a good look at Atul Gawande's book at the checklist. And what is the checklist? Well, basically it's what happens when the surgeons, the scrub nurses, the circulating nurses, the anesthesiologists, the respiratory therapists and everybody who's involved and engaged in an operation get together and talk about the patient they're going, to, they're going to take care of, who's going to do what, do we have antibiotics, we're supposed to have blood, have we ordered that blood, is it on reserve and available because what's the estimated blood loss here, what are we doing, who's doing it, are we doing it on the right side of the body because wrong side surgery still happens, you know, they take off the wrong leg, God forbid. Well, what is all of that about, Marianne? That's about teamwork. That's about getting everybody together in one moment. And that became the germ for the book and not that we're necessarily great at teamwork in healthcare, but I wanted to talk about the journey from me to we in healthcare and why that's better and make the argument that, you know, we're partway through that journey. Some of us are doing it better than others. And it's not just a professional look, but a personal look. You know, have I always been a team player in healthcare? No, I haven't been. In fact... You know, I had the only I alone can walk into the resuscitation room and know what's going on with the patient and what needs to be done to, to save the patient or make the correct diagnosis on the road to saving the patient or curing their disease or treating their injuries. And along the way, I've discovered that I don't think as well as I'd like. I suffer from fatigue, sleep deprivation. I got a pee and it's three hours since I, I should have had my pee break and I didn't. And cognitively, all of this is causing cognitive load that makes me not think as well as I should or could. And I've also discovered that when I have a little team with me, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant, a student, a resident, that they prompt me and my thinking gets richer and my diagnosis is better. It's more accurate. The treatment plans are better. And I wanted to be able to share that journey, not only in my own professional development, which I talk about in the book, but also the journey in medicine from me to we. And, you know, my my editor wanted to find out if there were any lessons that we could teach the rest of the world. And it turns out that there are. And those lessons can be taught to anybody, business, companies, advertising agencies, service providers, not-for-profits, you know, the writer's room of top Hollywood shows, you name it. They can all benefit from learning about teamwork.
1: You know, in recent years, you know, there's been new approaches to teamwork in the medical field, but there's also been a lot of pushback, you know, sometimes even at the expense of the patient. Why do you think that's been the case?
0: Well, there are many reasons for that. I guess, you know, there's pushback because we're talking, I guess, about a new idea. It's a big new idea. And, you know, I looked around for books on this topic and there are there are lots of management books about teamwork, but not aimed at the general population, not aimed at everybody. So where's the pushback coming from? I think the pushback comes particularly in those cultures that have a lot of ego, maybe a bit of narcissism. You know, the I alone syndrome, the idea that if I don't come up with the big idea by myself, then why am I here? People actually say that, people actually ask themselves that. They may feel shame about not knowing the correct answer to every pressing problem, every moment at all times. Or there may be a rigid hierarchy that says that prizes command and control over the ready and easy flow of ideas and exchange of information from top down and from bottom up. And I'm thinking there about medicine. Medicine has surprisingly rigid hierarchy. There are certain cultures of medicine, not everywhere, but in many parts of the world where if the professor says something, then a student never challenges that. And a nurse never challenges that. The military has a very rigid sense of command and control and doesn't want orders to be interpreted as suggestions. Or now we're open for discussion. What do you think of my order? They have a fear that if you don't have command and control, then you're going to get into trouble. You're going to have fuzziness on the, on the battlefield and, and you're going to have problems. Law enforcement has the same kind of culture. You know, that doesn't mean that there isn't room for pushback on that idea. You know, there are cases in which suspects have died from asphyxiation, from positional asphyxiation, you know, a knee on the throat or a knee on the side of the neck where a suggestion from somebody saying, I don't think he's breathing anymore. If that were accepted at that moment, it might actually save that person's life. So that's the case that I'm making in the book, that we can make the world safer, we can have higher productivity, and when you start looking at teamwork, you can actually see that people enjoy their jobs better, their professions better, they feel as if they're being listened to, they feel safe to make suggestions, even suggestions that might result in the entire big idea being thrown out, And they're happier. They have a greater sense of joy and ecstasy in the work that they do because they're no longer having personal goals only. They're also having shared goals where everybody feels as if they have skin in the game and a stake in the outcome.
1: I find it really interesting just how much ego gets in the way of good decision making. And you you give examples of this quite a lot in the book. I mean, there's some some really powerful examples of both good and poor teamwork, some of which are pretty stressful (laughs) to read about, to be honest. You know, airline disasters, mass shootings, you know, deaths in hospitals. Most of us aren't dealing with life and death situations in our jobs, but what are some of the common elements that you have found in your work that has resulted in cohesive teamwork?
0: I can flip it both ways, Marianne. I think Let's start with the big question, the biggest question that I ask in the book. Do you work on a team or do you work in a group? And there's a good chance. I I think we all talk teamwork. Who doesn't talk teamwork? It's a form of motherhood. You know, of course, we're team focused. We're team oriented. But is it a marketing concept? Is it something that you just say or do you do it? We conducted a Google poll, more than a 1,000 respondents, who basically answered the question, you know, 56% said they think the company they work in talks teamwork more than they actually do it, which I think is a pretty telling statistic. It frankly didn't surprise me. You work on a great team when you at least have a sense that there's a team goal and not just individual goals, where, you know, you work on a team in which everybody is recognized as having a superpower. You don't weaponize praise by only praising the praiseworthy, you know, the people in medicine who have the highest accolades, who, who win the most awards, you know, who have the highest approval ratings from their patients, who have the most research grants, who have the most papers published. That suggests that there are only one or two people in the group that are praiseworthy. And if that's the case, you don't work in a team, you work in a group. And it's really important to know the difference. You work in a team if your regular meetings have some sense of pleasure and joy that's commonly felt by everybody. And that means that you don't work, like you work in a group if it's the place where great ideas, you know, at your regular meetings, it's the place where great ideas go to die because... Somebody suggests it, and the first thing that happens when uh, somebody suggests an idea is that sounds crazy. Or they laugh about it so that it's gone. You know, it it just, you know, you know, there's a chuckle, and then we move on to the next topic. When in fact, every crazy idea could be the germ of a fantastic innovation. You work in a group if somebody suggests an idea, and the first thing that the leader does is wants to know who said that. Because I want to assess how much prestige they have. If they don't have enough prestige to have warranted making that suggestion, then we're just going to ignore it. And I want people listening to our conversation right now, Marianne, to slap their heads and say, you know what? I thought I worked in a team, but maybe I work in a group. But you work in a team where everybody's ideas have cachet. Everybody's ideas become the germ of something else. Where you work on a team if you support one another. If your objective, if one of your primary objectives at your job is to not just to make yourself look good, but make everybody else look good too. Or, you know, you work in a group. If your main objective is to make yourself look good. And if that means at the expense of your colleagues, then so be it. You know, sometimes I'm at my best. If I'm not at my best, then at least I'll make everybody else look bad so that I won't look bad by comparison. Dr. Theodore Grancharoff in the power of teamwork said that you know, he knows he works on a team because compared to the way it used to be, that's in the operating room, because he knows that when he's having a bad day, his teammates pick him up. Okay. So that's another indication that you work on a team instead of a group. And there, there are lots that are like that, but you don't have to be saving lives to experience what I'm talking about. You just have to have lousy monthly meetings to know that you don't work in a team, you work in a group.
1: You mentioned something and I definitely am going to think about next time I'm talking to my team and having a meeting is when someone brings up an idea instead of saying yes, but it's yes and.
0: Yep, that's improv. And that's two people. So that's an exercise that actually a lot. I was surprised at how many people know about it. You know, Certainly when I talked about the book to my CBC colleagues, they all knew what yes and is. And a lot of them have done improv training, which is neat. Great. So yes, and this is an improv exercise that I go through in detail in the book. That was a transcript of a real conversation that that took place. If you want to read about it, you got to read the book or listen to it. And it's an improv exercise that teaches people on stage to support one another, where a suggestion is given for a topic, it's a dyad, so there's a two-person team up there, a dyad being the smallest team. The first person says a riff, says something about the topic, The second person, if they're playing yes and, must agree with whatever the person has said, basically accept it and build on it. And then you go back to the first person who must agree and accept what the other person said. That's yes and. And what it's teaching you on stage is to support your colleague. That means if your colleague on stage appears to be floundering, their mind has gone blank, you throw them a lifeline. And, you know, there's a great saying, if someone throws you a lifeline, take it. And so that's how you build teamwork on stage. And you end up with a funny bit that everybody enjoys. And now, and you can even make the audience a partner when you're being heckled by the audience. You know, a smart comedian turns the member of the audience, the heckler into a teammate and they don't even know they're being turned into a teammate, but that's what happens as opposed to what you just said. Yes, but yes, but is what happens in meetings. Somebody suggests an idea and they say, yeah, and somebody responds, yes, but we tried that last year and it didn't work. Or yes, but, you know, I can cite five papers that say it's a lousy idea, and so on and so forth. The worst thing that you can do when somebody suggests something is to say a flat no. And, uh, well, you know, we're not going to talk about that today. Because that, what does that teach the person who suggested the idea? It might bring ridicule on them, it might make them feel unsafe about suggesting ideas. That's the suggestion box ideas. One day that person might show you that the idea could lead the company to disaster or it might lead to the death of the patient because you're missing something really important that you formulated a diagnosis and the diagnosis is, is wrong because it's actually inconsistent with the facts. And a still small voice says the potassium is supposed to be low. How come the potassium's high here? and somebody fudges and comes up with a rationalization and then they move on without changing the diagnosis, which is what they really need to do. Marianne, in the worst case scenario, it's the cockpit and the navigator is saying, I think we're 500 meters above the ground instead of 1,500 meters above the ground, which means they're about to crash. And the pilot is saying, "Mm, don't question my orders, buddy. And they crash. And that's actually happened.
1: You actually mentioned that Teamwork has worked so well, at least in the last 20 years or so, within that industry, because the pilots can potentially die <laughs> if something goes wrong and there isn't cohesive teamwork. But in healthcare, it's the patient, not the doctor, who's going to die. I thought that was kind of an intense and impactful thing to say.
0: Marianne, it's almost a cliche. And it's one of the reasons why for pushback in healthcare, it's the kind of cynical answer to the question: why haven't the lessons taught in aviation really seeped deeply into the culture in healthcare? But they haven't in law enforcement as well. And in the military. And I think some of the reasons I think, you know, certainly one, it it is fair to say that the airline industry, commercial aviation, is probably the only example of an endeavor in which the people who are providing the service are as much at stake as the people who are receiving the service. So that's absolutely true. Although you could, I guess you could argue that air traffic controllers, who at one point were not part of the circle of trust, not the circle of trust, but the circle of consultation, the part of the team, it's called crew resource management, which is a concept in aviation that's designed to reduce disasters by improving communication between all the stakeholders. You could argue that an air traffic controller is not going to die if the plane goes down. You know, just as you can argue that I'm not going to die if my patient dies. That results in some cynicism because are you saying that I don't care? what wakes me up at four o'clock in the morning but the patients who I've harmed. Of course, of course it is. Of course we care. You don't want to go through 10 years of examinations for discovery and lawsuits and being told that your work wasn't up to scratch by the College of Physicians and Surgeons and maybe, you know, maybe losing your license or having your license suspended and, and having, you know, your colleagues know that this happened. It, it's a deeply shameful experience. And so, you know, I think I think you would do anything to avoid that. I, I don't know a colleague who wouldn't give several years of their life to undo a mistake. They would because it's a terrible experience for the patient and it's also a terrible experience for them. They're not unfeeling, you know, unless they're the tiny percentage who are sociopaths. And I don't think medicine is filled with sociopaths. They're, they're actually quite the opposite. They're often, you know, populated with shame-prone individuals who go into healthcare because they have such a lousy impression of themselves that they, they feel like they need to do good all the time just to stay afloat, just to deserve to breathe the same air as you and I.
1: Do you think that anyone can learn good teamwork? Like, can we really bring those sort of lone wolves into a team and have it be successful?
0: Well, you know, you've asked two questions there and I, you know, let's take them one at a time. Can you teach teamwork? Can you learn teamwork? In the last book, in The Power of Kindness, people ask me, can you can you teach kindness? No, you probably can't. You can facilitate by relieving stress so that people aren't self-preoccupied. You can create an environment where kindness, you know, your natural tendency to kindness floats to the surface and becomes obvious. And one of the reasons why we're having so much trouble being kind right now is because of COVID. You know, with teamwork, I actually think you can teach teamwork. I think you need a degree of empathy, but most of us, I think, are equipped with the basic empathy that's that's required, you know, because we're hardwired to be empathic, so you've got that. Teaching teamwork, you know, I spend good half, you know, 40% of the book teaching the rudiments of how you teach teamwork, you know, visual thinking strategies, having a group of medical students or, you know, a group of people in, in just starting out in business or people established in business. Or the service industries sitting around, you know, sitting in front of a work of art and making their observations about what they see with a guided curator who asks questions like, What do we see? And people answer, not based on their knowledge of art or art history or anything like that, but what do they see? What are the images showing them? And then the second question, What do you see that makes you say that? And that's called critical thinking, you know, so that you're not just saying thumbs up, thumbs down, but you're actually saying, Why? What is it about the image that you see? And then other people are contributing. And then, you know, the third question that the that the facilitator of BTS asks is, what more can we see? And the idea is to dig deeper. The idea is to not stop at the first thing you saw, but to see if there's anything else there. And then somebody else makes a suggestion and you go on and on and on. What you're doing there is creating a safe environment for everybody to say what they see. And that's the building block along the way of, in a crisis, saying that this patient in the operating room who you've been trying to intubate for the last 15 minutes has an oxygen saturation of 65 and it's been that way for the last four minutes so that a good leader can say, oh, I didn't realize it was taking that long. Does everybody agree? What else do you see here? And then instead of feeling as if they have to solve the problem themselves, they're actually now gathering the wisdom of the team. And that's, you know, you can learn that. One of the ways that you can learn that is by playing games and by doing simulations, just as airline pilots, everybody in the cockpit crew goes into the simulator every six months and goes through scenarios that are rare, but if you encounter it and you don't have a strategy of what to do or tactics of what to do, you freeze and your focus narrows and you find yourself trying to repeatedly solve one problem over and over and over again and you're forgetting the fact that there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on. And there's a method for handling the crisis. And if you don't practice it, and in medicine up until very recently, we didn't, then you're going to be stymied by the emergency and the patient might die, might suffer irreversible brain damage, which is the story of Elaine Bromley, which is the story that I told in the book. It's the framing story of the entire book.
1: You say in the book, working on a team is a a transcendent experience. And once you have it, you don't want to go back to working in a group, you know, or alone. But you also say that being a good teammate wasn't instinctive to you at first. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah. In the before time, teamwork wasn't natural to me and it wasn't natural to our culture. I'd walk into a resuscitation room. I'd get a one-line history from the nurse or from the paramedics. And I was supposed to take over barking orders, just barking orders. IVs, medications, drug dosages. I'm supposed to know them all supposed to be able to, you know, intubate the patient and put in a central line and, and defibrillate if necessary and do it all by myself. And, you know, there's a cardiac arrest team. And so it wasn't always done by yourself. But even there, there was a culture in, the, in emergency medicine that if you have to call the cardiac arrest team, then you're not a very good resuscitator. That's the kind of stuff that we deal with. And a couple of things, you know, happened along the way. The first thing, the first development that happened, Marianne, was that the patients got too complicated. They all, you know, even these days, they have nine diagnoses and they've had 12 procedures and they're on 18 medications, even though the studies tell us that beyond the first three medications, a patient can't possibly remember all the dosages and, you know, what they're supposed to take or to take it properly. And so you need dosettes and these kind of devices that facilitate the taking of medications or better still, you need another human being telling you what to do, which is a team, by the way. So increased complexity of patients meant that I couldn't handle it all by myself. Uh, You know, I got older and I accepted that I couldn't keep all the knowledge in my head. At the same time, I started to discover that I functioned better on a team. That when I accepted the wisdom of nurses, when I uh, worked alongside a nurse practitioner who was presenting a patient to me so that the two of us were working on the patient as a team, Perhaps a physician assistant who was in the room when we were discussing the patient and that physician assistant is now engaged in asking questions and making suggestions too. You know, for instance, nurse practitioner and I are talking about a patient with heart failure and the physician assistant says, I remember a patient last week where we thought it was heart failure and it turned out to be chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Oh, what was the difference? Tell me more. Just that process that I have just talked about suddenly became a way of doing better. And I have caught myself on a team making better diagnoses, more accurate diagnoses. And as you have said, I don't want to go back. I think we need teamwork all the time because it's the way of of the world. You can certainly do better. You can function better. And I can tell you when we save a patient together, collectively, you know, I saw a patient recently in the emergency department with a ruptured spleen. From a fall. And, you know, our hospital is not an emergency department that sees trauma patients, but this turned into a trauma patient. And, uh, you know, I was working with, we're much more team spirited than we used to be. I had two other colleagues. Uh, There was a colleague also practicing emergency medicine who had moved to a less acute part of the emergency department. You know, we flow from treating the more seriously injured or more seriously ill patients to the less seriously injured or ill patients as our shift moves forward. I had taken over. It was a night shift. And that colleague had now moved to the ambulatory room, seeing people with, you know, finishing up his shift by seeing patients with ankle sprains and sore throats, et cetera, I'd co- rule out COVIDs. And he came back to help me. He had a resident with him who was doing a rotation, had just finished a rotation in bedside ultrasound. And I, on my little pocket ultrasound machine, I had found free fluid, but I got him to confirm it. And You know, I said, uh, I've got this patient with a ruptured spleen You know, I'll call general surgery right now because they're the ones that treat ruptured spleens in the operating room. And the colleague said, uh, I usually just go to critical first. In other words, I transport the patient out to the nearest trauma center because, you know, my experience is that general, even though, yes, you know, you probably should call the general surgeon, see what they think. But the general surgeon at a non-trauma center hospital usually doesn't like to operate on on trauma patients unless they have to, unless it's life or death, because they don't have the experience and they don't have the the equipment in the operating room. So they provided a pro-tip suggestion. And, you know, I called critical and I was going to give a medication that stops clotting, you know, reduces the bleeding, one gram of tranexamic acid. and, And the trauma surgeon said, make it two grams of tranexamic acid. You see how it goes? Teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work and we save the patient, save the patient. And, you know, I had I had to make an executive decision. I gave uncrossmatched blood to the patient and it was instrumental in saving his life because you know his hemoglobin wasn't dropping as fast as he was developing shock. He was going into shock and keeping his oxygen capacity, oxygen carrying capacity up saved his life so that he could endure the surgery, which he did.
1: I want to go back to you mentioned the before times before the pandemic. You know, there've been less opportunities, you know, for colleagues in medicine to do what you refer to as hallway consultations or for office workers even to have water cooler chats. How do you think the pandemic has had an impact in the way that teams function?
0: I think that the pandemic has been a kind of an accelerant, an accelerator to teamwork. And the first indication that I had was a colleague who I adore. I love this guy. His name is Paul Koblitz. And I was working a night shift and he was working the casino shift. So my shift extended from 11 p.m. until 9 a.m. And I would see patients, you know, and and there would be triple coverage when you arrive and then slowly but surely they all start start to leave until by about 3 o'clock, 3 a.m., 2, 3 a.m. You're alone until 7 a.m. when the next doc arrives. And Paul Coblets was the casino doc. So he was on from 9 p.m. and he was prepared to stay till 4 a.m.
1: What's the casino doc?
0: The casino doc is the one who gets to sleep in their bed for part of the night. And there are two ways of doing a casino shift. Either you start you know, at 9 p.m. and you finish at 2 a.m. or, th- or 3 a.m., maybe 4 a.m. But the idea is that you get to sleep in your bed by, say, 4.30 or 5 a.m. And hopefully you sleep in and you know, you you have at least a part of your sleep during your normal sleep period, which is at night. The opposite of that casino shift is a shift that may begin at 4 a.m. or at 5 a.m. And the idea is that you get to sleep in your bed starting, you know, hopefully early in the evening and, and you sleep until 3 a.m. or 3.30 or 4 a.m. And you do better than if you miss the entire night's sleep, which is what I was doing. And I wouldn't get to sleep until many hours later. So, this was the early days of the pandemic when there were, you know, masks weren't plentiful. We didn't have a vaccine. We didn't have good treatments. We were groping in the dark, and patients with high risk factors, older patients, and that's me, were dying of COVID. And there was nothing we could do. And Paul Koblitz offered to stay all night and do all of my intubations for me so I wouldn't have to have that increased exposure to COVID. And in other words, he offered to spare my life. And I've never forgotten that it's the most collegial team spirited thing that anybody's ever done. And I will never forget it. That to me said, wow, thank you. And there's a time in the past when I would have been ashamed of my of my vulnerability. But I just thought, well, what a wonderful guy. What a great guy. So that's the first thing that happened. That was the first thing that told me there's something different happening here. The second thing that happened is that we have something called protected code blues. Everybody knows code blue is a cardiac arrest. You run to the patient, you have an orderly kind of algorithm of things that you do. Protected means that we're terrified that if somebody has COVID and a lot of people who are having cardiac arrests or respiratory arrests had COVID, that the act of intubating that patient, passing a breathing tube, bagging them, all those things that we do could spew COVID germs around the room and everybody would get infected. And so we instituted stringent procedures, hazmat suits, double gloving, N95 face masks with face shields and hoods and all kinds of equipment. Well, we not only did that, but we enlarged the group into a team where we would have people in the room and people outside the room. And the purpose of the people outside the room was to be a spotter to make sure you, you donned the protective equipment correctly and you doffed properly in the correct order so that you didn't expose yourself to germs after you had left the room and we adopted a new kind of procedure that involved teamwork. Not only did you have to do it, but that half the people who were there were tasked with acting as spotters, making sure you did it properly, and you didn't miss a step, and stopping you if you did miss a step, so that you could keep yourself protected, so that you wouldn't be exposed to germs afterwards. That was a huge example of teamwork. I also found that in addition to that, we had, you know, it's really interesting, Marianne, you were talking about the difference between aviation and healthcare. You know, if the patient dies, well, we don't suffer. Whereas in aviation, if the plane goes down, everybody dies. Well, this was an example where everybody could potentially get COVID. So maybe that was the reason for it, but the result was greater teamwork. So I think I think COVID has increased innovation that led to teamwork. And it's not just in healthcare, it was teamwork that led to increased surveillance that was involved in the development of vaccines, that was involved in the procurement of masks and the jerry-rigging of masks and the development of all kinds of techniques that were designed to protect healthcare workers and the public from the pandemic. I think that COVID has been a great accelerator of teamwork. I just hope it lasts.
1: I suppose there's been for the first time a kind of a global common goal You know, as opposed to each of us with our own specific goals, you know, in whatever it is we're doing, we now sort of all had a common goal, which was pretty much to survive. You
0: know, Marianne, and and I, you know, I'm hearing you say that and I'm thinking about the truckers convoy protest and I'm thinking about... People who think that mask mandates are terrible and, you know, no longer want to hear about about COVID and certainly don't want to hear about the sixth wave, which is certainly happening in the province of Ontario. You know, obviously, your experience will vary depending on where you where you live and where you work. I'd like to believe that we had a shared or common goal. I don't think we do as much as as you've suggested.
1: Maybe in the early days, we did more so.
0: Maybe we did. Maybe we did. But even then, there were plenty of people who were, you know, as soon as a vaccine became available, like, you know, you wanted to hear, great, I'm going to roll up my sleeve. And even then you heard some people saying, well, I'm not taking that. There haven't been enough studies. And these vaccines have been more studied than almost any other vaccine in the history of vaccines. And, you know, millions and millions of people have taken it. And there's still people saying that there's this hidden group of adverse effects that they don't want you to know about. Marianne, I will concede there was more of a sense of a shared goal. I'm, a, I'm in more of a pessimistic phase right now, just because, you know, the, the denialism is, is quite striking at the present time. But yes, I will concede that.
1: You know, I want to talk to you a little bit about your own career trajectory before we totally run out of time, because I find it really interesting. Most doctors are not natural storytellers, I would say. Why has storytelling been so important to you?
0: Well, it's important to me for personal reasons, because that's my superpower. That's what I do. How do you have a story to tell? You have to empathize with the person whose story you're listening to. You have to gather all of the information and you have to connect the dots, maybe in ways that the person whose story you're telling is unaware. And that's the fun part of the book. I interviewed a a whole lot of interesting people, really interesting people. For instance, Alexa Miller, who was the the person, the woman who taught me about visual thinking strategies. And it'll be interesting to see when she reads the book, she's got the book now when she reads it, what she thinks of my take on her life. And you know, I think she's so important to health care. I know she knows she's important, that she's been important to the training of at least a small group of young physicians at Harvard Medical School who have now ventured out into the world and they're now starting their own BTS programs where they're working. So for me, I want to get the story right. I want to reveal some truth or truths that weren't known before. I want to deepen our insight. When I read a book, I want to deepen our insight, in this case, about teamwork. And I want to get a sense that I've gone deeper than other people who've told the same story, who've, who've assembled the same facts. And because I've made connections that other people might not have heard of before. You know, after that, it's up to, it's up to people listening to the story. Do they like it? Was it entertaining? Did it tell them something about the human condition that they didn't already know? That's what I do. And when I'm doing interviews on White Coat Art, I drive my team crazy, crazy because I take longer. I don't do the as it happens interview where it's supposed to be eight minutes and it was 10 and a half minutes. And, you know, they're going to talk to the host about that if that's going to be a chronic issue because they have a daily show and they've got a lot of interviews to cover and God love them. They do it beautifully, but that's not what I do. I want to ask a question and get a look on their face that says, I've been waiting for decades for somebody to ask me that question. That to me is a confirmation and affirmation that what I do is important. That's why I do what I do.
1: When I mentioned your show to people who maybe haven't heard it, I always say, you know, Dr. Goldman makes you care about something that you never thought you had any interest in before so you you will cover topics you know about addiction or about anything around you know the medical field that i sort of think I, you know i might start listening to, oh, i'm not sure about this one i don't know if i'll listen to this one and then and then i'm just sort of like enraptured by the end and usually crying at some point so your ability to tell a story in a way that really brings pretty much anybody into that story and makes it interesting to them, I find really pretty incredible because not all storytellers can do that, but I do find on your show that you are able to do that. What is one thing that somebody listening right now can do, whether it's at work or maybe even at home to be a more successful team player?
0: The most important thing that you can do as a start is to practice, yes, and I think, to take a few of the rudiments in the book one thing you can do is, is when someone suggests something to bite your tongue or your lip if your first impulse is to say we did that before and it didn't work. And try to frame your comments, responding comments in a way that builds on it and doesn't kick it to the curb. That's probably the most important single thing that you can do. You know, I think that the the VTS questions are great. When someone makes a suggestion or makes an observation that you think is either crazy or it's not up to the snuff of the of the room. You know, it's somehow it's not it's not an astute observation. It's not worthy of our time that you stop and say, what makes you say that? What are you seeing that makes you come to that conclusion? Just stay open minded a little longer. Don't close the inquiry or the conversation. If you do that, those are two things you can do. And, you know, of course, support your team like Make your team look good. Make your teammates look good because when they look good, your team looks good. And not just because you're covering up for them, but you're celebrating each other's superpowers. Try to do that.
1: Now you said you've been feeling a bit pessimistic lately and we are in the sixth wave of a global pandemic. What keeps you feeling hopeful and optimistic?
0: That's a hard one these days, Marianne, because you know, I, have, I have a close family member with frontotemporal dementia And I'm in the process of becoming her caregiver, you know, applying to the courts to become her caregiver. I am dealing with all the stuff that everybody else is dealing with. In addition, you know, my budgie died of cancer, uh, of, of a tumor. Yeah, you know what? She gave a lot of pleasure to our family and she died of old age. She died in her 11th year of life. So as the veterinarian said, she was on her second life. What keeps me optimistic? Well, breathing. I breathe. Breathe through your nostrils. Into a count of six and out to a count of six. Uh, don't hold your breath. I exercise because I I need that. I need to work out a lot of the tension through exercise, vigorous exercise, whether it's stationary bike or running. I try as much as possible to stop and think about the things I have. I, I can be grateful for, like having a you know a loving partner Tamara and my kids. Kaylee and Sasha. And Kaylee's got a new dog, Cleo, who is a, a mixed shepherd who was a little bit of a little bit of Chihuahua in her. And she's she's a huntress. And she licks me to death. She just washes me. She has adopted me as her as her puppy. And she washes me every night, like so thoroughly. So those are the things. And I know anyway, at first I hated it. I was convinced that I got a bacterial like lymphadenitis from that, but now I'm immune. And of course I am because now I've been exposed to her and she's just great. And she's taught me a lot about approaching an animal. She was a rescue dog from Texas and very skittish of us in the beginning. She's still, she'll always have a little PTSD and a bit of apprehension around us. But, you know, just try to notice the good stuff because if all you notice is the bad stuff, that's all there is.
1: Your book is called The Power of Teamwork, How We Can All Work Better Together. Brian, thank you so much for speaking with me today.
0: You're welcome. For more about this episode,
1: go to lifespeak.com slash podcast.